worship team. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church. And for the rest of us, let's grab our Bibles and we will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're coming to the conclusion of this part of our series on a healthy church. It's kind of an oxymoron that I'm speaking on a healthy church when I'm up here uh, sick as a dog, but that's okay. God has a great sense of humor, doesn't he? Well, as we come to this text, what we want to see about a healthy church is a healthy church is a church that recognizes that there are going to be people who will come into the church and often harm it. They're people that I like to call sleeper cells. And really, that's the idea of what we find here. Now, what is a sleeper cell? We know sleeper cells as groups of terrorists who come into a country and they live side by side with us. It always amazes me that when they discover one of these after a horrible terrorist act, that people all say, they were so normal. They were my neighbor. They never caused any problem. They seemed like nice people. I can't understand it. And then, boom, a terrorist attack hits. The sleeper cell awakens, and things blow up. This can happen in a church, not in the physical aspect, but more in a spiritual aspect. Satan is wise and loves to infiltrate the church. And I'm not just talking about the local church. I'm talking about the church at large as well, where people will come in and they'll say, I'm a Christian. But they'll offer up teaching that is contrary to God's word. They'll express the idea that if you want to be more sophisticated, more spiritual, more fill in the blank, then listen to what I have to add to what God's word says. And they lead people down the path of destruction. But you know, there's another kind of sleeper cell. A lot of times when we think of false teachers, we think in terms of what they have to say about the gospel or what they have to say about God God himself. But there's another kind of sleeper cell that can happen in the church. And these are the people that we rub shoulders with, develop relationships with, and they can turn and begin to do destructive things in the church and be every bit as damaging as some of the people who would teach heresy. And we want to see that all of those are possibilities within the church. Now, the Word of God begins in the text that we'll be looking at this morning with an idea that Timothy is to continue to teach these things. Look at the last part of that second verse. And here, Paul is saying to Timothy... Teach these things, you are to teach and urge them on. That's the idea. This is the last chapter of 1 Timothy. So when Paul says, these are the things that you're to teach and urge, what's he referring to? I believe it refers to the entirety of what we found in 1 Timothy so far. And what we discover as we 
consider what these things can refer to is that, first of all, Paul talks to Timothy about false teachers who come into the church. And he talks about how they can draw people away by doctrine. He talked about how many of them wanted to draw people back into legalism and the idea that they must follow God's law rather than turning to Christ and depending on Christ to deliver them. But that's just a small section of what these things are that Paul's referring to by that phrase. Much of what Paul speaks to in 1 Timothy is the way we treat one another. And I would submit to you that you spot a person who does the work of the false teacher, not only by what they say, but also by what they do. I would submit to you that you could even have a person who could pass the most exacting spiritual exam or theological exam, but by their behavior can do more damage to a church body than a person who teaches false things by their behavior. So I think both are in play. There are those that Paul is warning the church at Ephesus about, and Timothy as the leader at the church of Ephesus. He's he's warning them about those who would come in and teach false teachings. But he's also warning them about people who would come in and not recognize God-ordained structure and not recognize our responsibility to treat one another and care for one another in love. So that's what we want to see today as we come to this text and see what the Word of God has to say about these sleeper cells. First, notice we identify those who are doing this work of disruption and harm in the church by, in verse 3, finding that they are people who refuse to come under the authority of God's word. It says, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not teach the sound doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. Now, the first way that we identify someone who is a false teacher is this. They don't teach that which matches up with the word of God. They go off the reservation. They come up with their own ideas about what the Bible really means when it says something. We need to be careful about those who would corrupt and distort and twist the Word of God. And many, many, many teachings are out there that don't match up with the Word of God. Be careful about the teaching that you listen to. Be careful. You can find it on the internet. You can find it on your radio. You can find it in books and pamphlets. There's a lot of confusion out there about what the Bible says. We need to be careful and aware of that. And the best way to understand the Scripture is to understand this. The simple meaning of Scripture and the literal meaning of Scripture is the most understandable and accurate way to interpret it. Many love to come in and offer their own spin, their own ideas, and distort what the Scripture says. The warning here is that there are those who come into the church and they are actually teaching doctrine that is different doctrine. I like the way the New American Standard translates this passage. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words 
those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with doctrine conforming to godliness, then they are conceited, is how the text goes on. Look at how the English Standard Version translates it. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, then again, they are conceited and understand nothing. So the problem here is there are those who will enter the church and they will teach a different doctrine. We need to watch out for those. They come in as sheep, but they are sheep in wolves' clothing. Bottom line, God determines what is right for us. We don't. Just because someone comes up with a new and great idea doesn't mean that it's a great new idea. We need to check it out with God's word. If it matches up with what God teaches, then thumbs up. But if you can't find scriptural support for what's being supplied to you as, as a thought or an idea, then there's a severe problem. And we need to be careful of that. Secondarily, as I said, not only is this a doctrinal issue, but there are also behavioral issues. Sometimes people will come into the church and line up doctrinally with where the church is. They will follow what the church teaches, but they don't follow the structure and the leadership of the church. And so there's something that begins to clash. And when things begin to clash, there are divisions and there are factions that develop within a church. And let me share this with you. Those are as damaging as the false teachings that are presented. You know, I've talked to many pastors over the past year, and so many of them are commiserating and sharing some of the difficult times that their churches are going through. I believe that there are spiritual attacks on Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches And Satan is doing all that he can to stir up believer against believer in order to cause division and harm to the body of Christ. Jim was mentioning the importance of prayer. How do we fight spiritual battles? Through prayer. As a church body, I I encourage you, pray for the unity of this church body. Pray for the unity of Bible-believing, Bible-teaching churches all around us. Because this is epidemic. It's going on in many churches around us. And I believe that Satan knows that his time is short. And so he will try to inflict harm and damage on places where the word of God is taught. So we need to take our stand. We need to stand firm in the face of that spiritual opposition. Now as we go on in the text, we find the characteristic of those who refuse to come under the authority of God's word. They're characterized in a couple of ways. Look at the fourth verse. Those who are teaching these other doctrines, not agreeing to the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're not agreeing to godly teaching, in other words, teaching that tells them how they're to behave with one another, the common denominator in those who will stand against these things is, first of all, They're conceited. Now, when we think about the term conceit, we all have images of what a conceited person is, right? Probably when I said they're conceited, somebody's face popped into your mind. Somebody you're thinking about. Wow, they're arrogant, right? Listen, pride is something that God detests. 
There are those who can come into the church and they can speak in spiritual ease. And they can come in and give the impression that they're humble. But in reality, behind that pseudo-humility is a conceit and a pride and an arrogance. Some will weaponize God's word and they'll use it to attack other believers. Some will take on this air of super spirituality and confuse people by that air of super spirituality. What the word of God is telling us is for the servant of God, for the follower of God, there is no place for pride. In fact, godly people are humble people. The scripture says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, how do I live a life worthy of the calling that I've received? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. God wants us to be humble people that put up with our differences. God wants us to be people who are gentle with one another, not caustic and difficult. God wants us to be patient with one another, bearing with one another. A conceited person will come in and divide. But a person who is humble will seek to unite. This is what God wants of us. And the common denominator in those who come in and cause divisions in the church is pride. It's at the forefront of who they are as a person. And they will eventually cause problems. Look at what else the scripture says. The person who doesn't follow this teaching is not only conceited, but they understand nothing. Now, Paul's being pretty caustic here himself, isn't it? He's telling it like it is. Here's the image. This is an absolute expert in everything. But he is able to do absolutely nothing because he understands less than he thinks. Listen, as we grow in our spiritual knowledge, it should never be an occasion for pride. You know what I've found as I've studied God's word? (laughs) Rather than being something that I can look at myself and say, wow, I'm better than I thought I was. (laughs) I look at the word and I go, oh man, another area that I'm messing up in. Another area where I, I need to surrender this to God and 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 learn to allow God to transform me in this. I should never come in and compare myself with other believers. I shouldn't look at others and say, well, someday when they get as sophisticated in their knowledge as I am, perhaps they'll change. I shouldn't do that. I should look at God's truth and grow in my understanding of how to apply it. And I believe the godly person who does that will be that gentle, humble patient person who bears with other people. This is what God wants of us. This is the way we demonstrate it. I love what Paul said to the Corinthians. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the one who loves God is known by God. That's a powerful verse. My knowledge isn't something that should cause me to feel an air of superiority over other people. I am more educated and spiritual than you because I found this truth. That should not be what happens. I should seek to take that truth and build others up with it. Encourage them. Help those who are struggling and weak. Pray for them. Humbly take them by the hand and lead them. Not viewing myself as superior, but viewing myself as a brother who struggles right alongside them. And we're working on this Christian growth thing together. That's the idea. The false teachers won't do that. And then, after Paul shares this, he moves into some of the activities of false teachers that hurt God's church. So if you have a person who doesn't respond to authority, if you have a person who is proud and conceited and doesn't understand as much as they think they understand, how are they going to behave? Look at some of these activities, these attitudes even, of some of the false teachers. And the first thing is they agitate by perpetuating controversies. Rather than being someone who bears with other people, rather than being someone who encourages and walks alongside them, these are people who love to agitate, who love to cause breakdowns in the church. Look at what it says. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies. An unhealthy interest. The idea is this. The person loves to create and run toward controversy. Have you ever met one of those people? There's the opportunity to make peace or to pick a fight. They'll pick the fight every time. They're not going to love. They're not going to show patience. They're not going to show encouragement. They're going to go toward the controversy. God does not want that to take place in his church. The idea is you avoid the controversy. You choose your battles. Now, there are things that we need to stand on. The gospel, the word of God. These are things that we don't cave on. But in some of the ways that things are done, some of the procedural things that are done, some of the music that is done, there are a lot of things that we can look at that we can say, you know what, rather than perpetuating a controversy in this, I will not. I will bow to the greater good of unity within the church. Look at what else we find. In addition to having an unhealthy interest in controversies, they move on toward quarrels about words. Quarrels about words. In other words, what they do is they major on the minors. They love to split theological hairs. And then in splitting those hairs, they'll glom on to one of the fragments and hang there for as long as they can. And anyone who hasn't attached themselves to that fragment of the theological hair that they've split, that's persona non grata. We want no place in a relationship with that person. Listen. God wants us to be people 
who make peace with one another. He doesn't want us arguing about words. A number of years ago, we had a very emotional 911 service right after the towers fell. And we had a great attendance, and it was a moving service. And so everybody left, and I was up in the front kind of puttering around, and an individual came up to me and said, you know, I want to talk with you about why we don't use the King James Version of the Bible. And I said, you know, this really isn't a good time. If you'd like to make an appointment, I would love to sit down and talk with you about that. But right now, I'll tell you, I'm emotionally spent. Um, I'm not in a great frame of mind to talk about that right now. So could we please just postpone this? Well, they insisted. They said no. We had recently had a fire as a family, and the individual even said, do you know the reason you had your fire is because you don't use the King James Version of the Bible? Well, she succeeded in rekindling a fire (laughs) in my anger. And I just couldn't believe it. And I said, hey, maybe you'd be happier going to a church where they do use the King James Bible. And I walked away. Listen, we don't argue about the fine-tuning things, the non-essentials of the faith, or we shouldn't. We need to be careful in that. Not glomming on to the theological hair-splitting that can take place. I have beloved friends and family that I differ on some theological points with. We all believe that you come to a relationship with with God through Jesus Christ. We agree that the Bible is the eternal word of God. But in some of the finer points, we differ. That's okay. What's important is that we differ agreeably. When we come to the place to where we say, unless you hold to my narrow view, you're a heretic, we run into problems. So here the word of God is warning us about that. Look at what else we find. Here, the person not only has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels, not only are there quarrels about words, but things begin to develop out of that. First of all, we find that they actively engage in fostering envy and strife. So what happens? Whatever point I hold to, whether it's a theological point or a procedural point about things done in the church or how they should be, you know what I do? If I'm proud, I press my point in the church. I go to as many people as will listen, and I share that my point is right and that the point of others is wrong. And until they come to our point, There's a serious problem in our church. And so what happens? My group begins to argue with their group. And we begin to envy one another. We look at the other people and if good things happen to them, why does God keep blessing them? They're so bad. Or... 
If something bad happens to them, well, isn't that just a shame? Oh, boy. Right? That's the idea of envy. We become resentful of them. Listen, God does not want Christian people to be resentful of other Christian people. He wants us to love one another, and love hopes for the best. That's the way we should view one another. Lovingly. With a sense of encouragement. The passage talks not only about envy, but about strife. And strife is sort of the end result of envy. As my team envies their team, and their team envies my team, then guess what happens? Strife. Strife very simply means division. A harboring resentment that one group has toward another group. God warns us against that. Solomon wrote this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, now that would pair with the conceited part that we talked about. Lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and look at this last one. And a man who stirs up dissension among the brothers. God hates these things. And as believers, we should hate what God hates and love what God loves. So we need to be careful in the way that we treat one another and in the way that we view other believers within the body of Christ. Look at what else we find. They attack through malicious talk and evil suspicions. Now, this is coming toward the end of the list, but I think we really need to think about what what is being said here. Once you break into fragments and into factions, what do you do? You begin to talk maliciously about one another. I want to convince other people that these people are bad. So I will go to people who have no business in knowing what's going on, but I'll bring them up to speed and I'll share these terrible things with them so that they can see that I'm right and these other people, they're wrong. And what happens when that takes place is that's what the scripture calls malicious talk. I think we need to seriously Consider what we say about other people and how we frame it. We really do. James had this statement. No human being can subdue the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people made in God's image. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? Before I say something about even a non-Christian, that is a person made in God's image. I need to consider that. So, racial slurs, calling somebody a worthless piece of whatever you call them, those are statements about people who are made in God's image. Now, if that's true of what we say about other people, We should even raise the bar when it comes 
to fellow believers. We don't want to engage in malicious talk. And we certainly don't want to engage in evil suspicions. Now, what are evil suspicions? Listen, once we've divided into factions, once there is strife that runs rampant, we begin to become paranoid. That person across the church talking to somebody else glanced in my direction, so I know they're talking about me. Or that person across the church talking to that other person wouldn't even look in my direction, so I know they're talking about me. (laughs) Right? We get paranoid. We start building scenarios where the people that we have fallen into disfavor with just can't do anything right because we're always going to believe the worst about them. And this is an evil thing that causes horrible, horrible harm within the church body. And that's why Paul warns Timothy, and that's why the Holy Spirit had Paul write this to Timothy, because it's something that we need to understand that as a church body, we should avoid, not perpetuate. Finally, let's look at the agenda of false teachers. It's always self-serving. Notice verse 5 says that they always cause turmoil. They are people of constant friction between men of corrupt minds. Now what this means is, Paul is describing people within the body of Christ who constantly cause conflict within the church, and then once they have caused conflict within one church, unfortunately what very often happens is they move to another church and cause conflict there, and then move to another church and cause conflict there. They are disruptive forces within the body of Christ. We've met people who love to cause conflict, don't they? They just can't let it go. Now, they'll present an idea as, I'm not going to compromise my principles, but very often it's a conceited approach that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And until they come to my position, they're not right. We need to be people who make peace. We need to be people who understand that God wants us to be people of peace, not conflict builders. Look at what James says, and I'm sorry this is an extended passage, but it really nails what I'm trying to get across. It says this, if you have bitter jealousy and selfishness in your hearts, do not boast and tell lies against the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Now, what we need to recognize first is this. Where we have bitterness and selfishness that exists in any relationship, whether it's your marriage or, or your church relationship with others, if there's bitterness, jealousy, and selfishness, that does not come from the Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, it comes from us, that natural element, And I believe that it can even be demonically inspired. 
Now, Satan can't force a believer to do something, but he can make suggestions. So if I start to be at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, Satan's whispering in my ear, yeah, you really were treated bad. That's terrible what they did to you. You can't let them get away with that. You better warn other people so it doesn't happen to them. And so it goes. And the conflict builds. And rather than finding peace, we find conflict. Look at verse 16. For where there is jealousy and selfishness, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above, now this is godly wisdom, is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, accommodating, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, not hypocritical. Do you see the difference? The false teachers are people who are conceited and selfish and have to drive their own plan. And if you're not for me, you're against me. And I'm going to cause as much struggle and strife until I get my way that I can. Compare that with God's approach. Let's do that which makes peace. Look, let's, let's be gentle with one another. We don't have to be so harsh. Let's accommodate our differences Let's show mercy to one another. Yeah, they did something wrong to me, but man, I will show him mercy. That's godly wisdom. It's full of good fruit. It's impartial. I'm not going to show favor for somebody who makes my life easier over a person who makes my life more difficult. I'll show favor to both. That's the idea. It's not hypocritical. Look at verse 18. The fruit that consists of righteousness is planted in peace by those who make peace. You know what God wants instead of the person who has the corrupt mind who rushes toward conflict? He wants peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is what God wants of us. Peacemaking throws water on the fire and extinguishes it. Conflict makers throw kerosene. And it starts to blow out of proportion and cause damage. That's why God wants us to be the peacemakers. Finally, we find in the last part of this verse that they advance themselves, and that's the primary goal. These are men of corrupt mind, this is verse 5, who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, when we look at this text, the godliness as a means to financial gain, what's the idea? Listen, there are some people who view religious work as an opportunity to make money. And we've seen horrible example after horrible example of those who fleece the flock and bilk money out of people living extravagant lifestyles while they ask their people to give sacrificially. They see godliness as a means to financial gain. God does not need people's money. We give out of worship to him. We give because we recognize that all we have belongs to God in the first place, and so we support his work Because we love him. 
There shouldn't be a manipulation where we come in and strong-arm people and ask them to give money and then live in an extraordinary, extravagant lifestyle. But you know, I think the text refers to even more than just the idea of financial gain. The word that's translated financial gain in the NIV is actually a word that means advantage. And it could be advantage of any kind. For some, it's financial. But for some, maybe it's prestige. They see godliness as a way of exalting themselves and the view of other people. For some people, it's power. I want to take over the church, you know, that sort of thing. Whatever the reason, godliness is not about us. It's about God. That's the big picture. That's the big idea. In each of the characteristics describing the false teachers, it was all about them. The good of the church body played second fiddle to what was good for them. The unity of the body had to be sacrificed so that they could have conflict, so that they could have power over at least a segment of the church if they couldn't have power over the whole church. That's the lie that Satan tells people who get sucked in to this kind of scenario. So what do we do as believers to avoid this? We as believers need to understand that from time to time there will be problems within a church. They come and they go, they're cyclical. Every church has them. Every pastor laments them. It takes a little piece of you each time it happens. And it hurts a little bit more each time. But stand firm. God's work continues. We have to do a gut check and make sure, am I in the right place? Individually, Am I a peacemaker, a unity builder? Am I doing what I can do to see the work of Christ grow? I'd like to close with an excerpt from a book. It's called Well-Intentioned Dragons. Funny title, but a tragic premise. This is right out of the introduction. It's written by Marshall Shelley. And if you haven't read it, it's a disturbing but good read. Here's what he says. Anyone who's involved in leading a church recognizes the irony. The community that gathers in the name of Jesus Christ is often populated by problem people who make things much harder for everyone. In this book, we'll call them well-intentioned dragons. Dragons, of course, are fictional beasts, monstrous reptiles with lion's claws, a serpent's tail, bat's wings, and scaly skin. They exist only in the imagination. But there are dragons of a different sort, decidedly real. In most cases, although not always, they don't intend to be sinister. In fact, they're usually quite friendly. But their charm and Earnestness belie the power to destroy. Within the church, they are often sincere, well-meaning saints, 
but they leave ulcers, strained relationships, hard feelings in their wake. They don't consider themselves difficult people. They don't sit up nights thinking of ways to be nasty. Often they are pillars of the community, talented, strong personalities, deservingly respected. But for some reason, they undermine the ministry of the church. In most cases, they are not naturally rebellious or pathological. They're loyal church members, convinced they're serving God. But they wind up doing more harm than good. Sightings of these dragons are all too common. When veteran pastor says anyone who's been in ministry more than an hour and a half knows the wrath of a dragon. Or as veteran Harry Ironside described it, wherever there's light, there's bugs. The passage that we find here is a very practical passage. These issues aren't new to this century. This is 2,000 years ago. A persecuted church, there was division and difficulty. God's word gives us the course to navigate difficult waters. And that's the key to success. In this and everything, following God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the blessing that your word is to us. It's so practical, so real. Help us to be people who are faithful to it. Let us not become distracted or discouraged, but let us continue to run the race with endurance. And let us be peacemakers. Let us be gentle and humble and kind. Let us be people who show grace and mercy. For we know, Father, that that is your heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.